Good morning. Good to see everybody here this morning, ready to dig into God's Word, have it instruct our hearts and minds and our souls. We ended with a fantastic faith-building song, It Is Well With My Soul, and God has taught him to say in his Christian life, It's Well With My Soul. Today's passage is exactly opposite of that. Today we look at a passage where it is not well with some people's soul. As you know, we are in the book of 2 Peter. And Peter is addressing something, unfortunately, that is very real, even within Christendom. We see evil out in the world, but we also see falsehood and deception and malice, even within the walls of a church or a community of faith. This is a hard passage. Um, And this morning I just was reviewing this, and I was like, you know, I don't really want to preach this, Lord. It's no, there's no fun to preach passages where, where people are indicted for evil and sin and where our hearts are awakened to it. And I was reminded of um, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures God breathed. It's useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. And so God strengthened my soul to put the emphasis on the power of His Word to be heard. And so we're going to look at a passage that is where Peter really indicts people. And I think if I had to say anything, if I made, a, if I made a, an application before we even finish, is that I hope that this passage, among other things, serves to cure the naivety of sin and the power of evil in our own hearts and also in the hearts of others. As the faith endeavors to build a very pure and holy people of faith, we have to be reminded that that sin is still in the world. Christ is resurrected, so we have that hope and we have that faith. And He will bring all evil to an end, put everything in its proper place... But in the meantime, it's, it's passages like this we have to deal with in real life. And we want to be careful that we don't just apply it to others or some other church and not draw attention to perhaps some naivety in our own hearts. Things that we really need to watch out for. Sins in seed form. So let's read our passage. I think I said we'll start with verse 10, but... We're going to go back to verse 9. If you just jump into verse 10, you won't, it won't make a lot of sense. We're going to read the rest of chapter 2 in 2 Peter. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially, or to a higher level of degree... Those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals... Creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed 
blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts turned, trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that is he, he enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them. And overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire, the dog, and the sow. Peter obviously has a passion for God, and he obviously has a passion for truth. And it has provoked his heart and his soul, this knowledge of these false teachers and their wayward behavior and lifestyles. And in this indictment, fiery indictment to these people that are living in sin, that are feasting among them, he uses choice words. And in these choice words, I think we find, should find a very strong warning in what to look out for in false teachers. People who perhaps might be in among the people of faith for sinful reasons, for lustful, passionate reasons, arrogant, boastful, willful Reasons. Not everybody is genuine. And so he goes into great detail. And so I'm going to take that as indication that these are things we need to hone our own skills for. To look out for among people in the church. We want to use this to build discernment and perhaps be a good judge of character. One of the things, and I just kind of group these in categories, as he characterizes these false teachers. One characterization or one category would be their brazen character. We saw in verses 10 through 16, just to repeat, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. So to blaspheme the glorious ones, it's kind of confusing but the idea is that they are so arrogant that they have 
no respect for God and God's system. And the idea is that even angels don't take it upon themselves to cast judgment or blaspheme other fallen angels or sinners. They leave that to God. There's a respect and a system and a level there, even in the spiritual realms. And Peter points out that these false teachers are so cold-hearted that they just say anything in complete disregard of God and His system of holiness. They don't even tremble at the prospect that they might do something wrong or say something wrong or step out of line. So that's how cold their their hearts are. And they don't really, as a result, tremble at the idea of experiencing any kind of destruction or any kind of wrath from God. They don't have a fear of Him in any way. And it's willful arrogance. It's pride. And this is how far pride can, can take us, and we see it, not just in churches, we see it in, in the world, we see it in our own lives, and that pride in our own minds, it elevates us to a point that sometimes we get to the point where we think, well, the law doesn't really apply to us here. The law of morality, the ways of God, or even the ways of the world. I have no respect for it. I'm above it for whatever reason. Whatever elevated reason we may come up with in our own heads. And it's such a dangerous thing. And we see Christian leaders fall because of this very kind of thinking. I'm above that. I'm exempt from that. Systems. So, this is why sometimes... We see that actually confronting people like Peter has done in this way, as hard as it is, is sometimes the most loving thing we can do for a person. I thought about this passage and I thought, well, wait a minute. If these false teachers are feasting with these other believers, then when they get this letter and they read it publicly, and that's what they did in that day, they'd get these letters and they would read them. Uh, You couldn't Google you couldn't Amazon and get the book, buy the book for yourself. So that means that these false teachers whom he's describing were very likely present at the reading and public reading of this letter. Or at the very least would have been told about it verbatim. And so this is a very stern rebuke. A specific rebuke to a specific uh, group of people. I can only imagine the, 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 the tremors or the, the uh, talk that was going around in this church. And yet he doesn't back down. He knew that they would hear this and he points them out. Why? Because Peter has a love for truth. And when we don't, we don't listen to truth, when we don't properly understand it, by the way, instinct and ignorance, we'll look at that in a minute then it is very destructive and dangerous. It's dangerous to our own hearts and it's dangerous to the lives of those that we affect. And he has a tremendous love for God. And he doesn't want to see God's honor and worth defamed in any way, so he just tells it like it is. He confronts them with bold words. And I think this is an important reminder, and we see this in Scripture all the time. Sin is... Properly addressed, it's confronted. And I think it's important to bring this up because our 
culture is actually moving in the exact opposite direction. Have you noticed? Confrontation these days is you'll be confronted for confronting anybody about their lifestyle or their faith. So we, we live in a culture, the Bible doesn't tell this, but we live in a culture that is telling us to, to speak the truth to someone is unloving. And what love is, is to agree with their choices and their decisions. Uh, love in our culture means affirming people's choices, not confronting them. And so there's this... It puts love and truth in conflict. The Bible does not put love and truth in conflict. Peter doesn't see this as a conflict. He sees it as a good thing, a healthy thing, a correction. Jesus says, speak the truth in love. Can the truth be misused? Absolutely. Sadly, it can. We can come at people with the truth of God's word and throw scripture at them for our own evil purposes. And it's not helpful. But truth is meant to be spoken in sincere and caring ways for the other person's good and for the glory of God. And that's how Scripture tells us to use it. And I know that our culture is obsessed with feeling good about itself in the wrong ways. And we have to speak about matters of truth. We have to confront even sometimes people in the church because when we don't, it leaves victims. What do we have? Potential victims. In this very passage, unstable, weak. And there are weak people. There are new believers, new converts that are naive and prone to believe anything. And they can fall prey to this kind of behavior and teaching. Speaking the truth in love is very, very important. It's not a conflict. And when we affirm someone's harmful or ungodly choices, it's a cruel thing. It's a cruel thing. To allow people to live in sin. When we see what the scripture says about. Well that brings. Destruction to their soul. They're, they're looking for. To feel good. They're looking for satisfaction in the wrong places. And it's only going to lead to more slavery. And more dissatisfaction. So Peter describes these people in no uncertain terms. But they needed to be addressed. And really. As hard as this passage is. This is Peter loving his flock well, isn't it? He's loving his flock well. He's warning those who are in sin. He's warning those who are striving to love God, to be careful for this kind of people, and also to guard against their own hearts. Because when it gets to this level, it's only because it started these kind of thoughts of arrogance and pride and lust. It started in seed form. And it was acted upon. He goes on to describe them as irrational animals. So animals do what? It's hard to reason with an animal. I've seen people do it. Lisa and I went for a walk this weekend and there was this lady. She had her dog on a leash. She was in a park and she, you could tell she really loved her dog um, as we love our pets. And she was reasoning with her dog. Don't go over. Oh, that's a pine cone. Smell that. Went over to Smith. No, that's not a pine cone. That's a leaf. Stay on the path now, talking to this dog, reasoning through as if it was a child. And it was cute. That dog didn't know what that master was saying. Animals are not created in the image of God. There's a difference. Hopefully you know that. And so Peter's pointing out 
the, the instinctive uh, behavior of animals. It's not, you don't stop and think, well, what does God have to say about this? Just your, your, your mind or your flesh is flooded with an impulse and you act upon it. And animals are wired like that. That's all they know. And so false teachers, they have trained themselves just to react by instinct. Forget about the self-control and the fruit of the spirit that the scripture teaches. I want what I want and I'm going to get it. And also their teachings are based on ignorance. Now they might deliver their material well as if they know exactly what they're talking about. But it's, there's, there's no foundation there. It's, they don't really know. It doesn't pan out. I've seen, I've seen um, people teach the Bible in this very way. As if they know how it all fits together and it's so misleading and it's so uh, confusing. So there's no self-control. There's no, there's no scholarship here. There's no desire to approach God's word with respect to make sure I get it right and not lead anybody astray. Woe be unto me if I make Scripture say something that it doesn't say. There's none of that fear in Him. So, before we go any farther, the obvious application, I think, is for us to beware of pride. And that's, that's the root here. You mean pride can cause all that mess and trouble? Yeah. It is that destructive. As a matter of fact, Peter says that what one thing that God there's two things that God is good at in this passage. One is He can preserve the righteous. We sang it. He will hold us fast. But He can also preserve the unrighteous, the ungodly, to get what they deserve. The wages of sin is death. And that is also going on in this world. So we want to be We want to be careful about pride. Pride tempts us in all the wrong things. Pride will tempt us to, well, maybe sometimes act like we know what we're really talking about. But we don't. Might tempt us to lie. Might tempt us to only arrange things to our own favor so that we can get what we want. Carry out our own wishes it's humility that's a fruit of the spirit not pride the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.12 says let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall you see the balance you see how kind God is to us he knows our fallen nature he knows our tendencies and so he constantly He gives us encouragements, but also warnings. Here's what we want to pursue. And boy, we need to be careful of this. And pride is one of those things. So here's how bad it gets. In verse 13, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Blots, blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Now, we know how sin usually works. We're ashamed of it. We don't want to do our sin in broad daylight. We want to do it in secret because we're ashamed. And we don't want to get caught because then we might have to shut down our sin business. We want to keep it going. So by all means, the last thing you want to do is shed a light on it. And yet, this, this group of people is so arrogant. 
that they're not ashamed to revel in broad daylight, to sin in broad daylight. So evil is apparently more complicated than we're used to. It can even get to a level where rather than admitting that it's a little shameful and I shouldn't do this in public, it can even jump up to this this platform of, well, I'm just going to do it in public. Maybe I can change public's opinion about whether this is even right or wrong. Sounds like uh, the world we live in today, doesn't it? So, when we lose our shame, we want to make our sin normal behavior. Just, the world's just got to deal with it. I'm going to do this in front of you, like it or not. Pride can lead us to that kind of delusional thinking. Just take it public. Revel in the daytime. What this really does, if you think about it, and it's so sad because you have this people, these people that are actually a part of a community of believers in some way. And what it really does is show how far away from God they are. When we lose our sense of shame to God's standard of right and wrong, it's no wonder God is preserving them for a destructive judgment. Think about the Garden of Eden. And we call it the fall. It's the tragedy. Books have been written about it. Poems have been written about it. What happened? Well, after breaking covenant with God, Adam and Eve, the first creatures on the earth, they experienced tremendous shame. It completely changed their outlook about everything. Sin entered into paradise. Genesis 3, 7. Then the eyes of both were open. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Why? Well, they broke covenant. They broke trust. And now the world is filled with untrust. And they got to live in it. They don't look at each other the same anymore pre-fall. Because evil entered. Well, if I, if I break this kind of trust, if I disobey then I have this evil in my heart. How else is it being applied? They look at each other. They realize they're naked. But it's, it's not just that, that, that nudity. It's the whole corruption of the spirit. Well, now, what do you even see when you look at me? What is going on in your head? Because I can't trust it anymore. Now that I know that evil is also a part of our thought life. See, it wreaks havoc. And so they're ashamed and they're, they're vulnerable in this area. What do you even think about me? How can I even know if what you say is true anymore? Are you loving me or lusting after me? Do you still like what you see? And then you have the whole break of peace and fellowship with God. And so, yeah, they're ashamed. They want to cover themselves up from each other's mistrust and and thought life in the eyes, but also hide from God. They don't feel safe anymore. They don't have that peace and that trusting relationship. It's broken. Now we know the story that later on God, our merciful God, comes to them. And He covers them with animal skins. And He, he, he puts out, I guess, the olive branch 
to welcome them back based on His covering, based on His provision, which is a picture of Christ covering our sin, covering our shame and saying, you know, actually, though you should stay hidden and outside of my presence, I am inviting you in. I am doing what you can't do. What a beautiful picture. We know that God comes and does that. But when we don't accept that, when we don't live by God's ways and believe in the good news and the gospel, we're left to try to to figure out how to deal with our shame on our own. And we do not draw right conclusions. We're left to try to how, to, how do we feel good about ourselves anymore when we realize we are sinners and we have these terrible thoughts in our heads. It's a dangerous thing. So rather than refusing to, to they refuse to take their sin to God, uh, they just decide, well, I'm not even going to cover my sin. I'm just going to act like it's not even shameful anymore to do this. I'll just do it right in broad daylight. Try to normalize it. It's interesting how in our culture, we see things, especially as believers, and we think, what in the world are people thinking? And what I've noticed, and and this is just in my head, what I've noticed is that when something really sinful or terrible or just a bad idea happens in our culture, somebody decides they're going to do something, the first thing that happens usually to kind of break the ice to try to normalize it is it's, it's wrapped in comedy. You'll see some kind of comedic skit about it. And what comedy does is it, it, can, it can... Of course, comedy can be used in a great way, but it can take this terrible, vile thing and make a joke about it so that yeah, it, it's sharp, it blunts the edge, I guess you'd say. Kind of downplays it. And it, now it's something we can laugh about or joke about and it becomes normalized in our culture. It's no longer in this category. Well, don't even joke about it. We shouldn't even, we shouldn't even give that any credence at all. Well, now we allow ourselves to joke about it. Well, then, then the um, entertainment industry gets a hold of it. And usually there's a book or a movie and it tells the lives of the, the poor victims that had to come to these kind of decisions and so forth. But the whole idea is that eventually it goes mainstream. Now, if you are in the older generation, how many things are that are mainstream today that a lot of culture just says, well, that's just life these days. Do you roll? I mean, just cannot even believe that our society has come to this. That there is so much openness and blatantness to things, especially in God's word that he abhors. So I guess we could say, you know, when we get to this point, what a sad commentary of, wow, talk about being far away from God. Talk about being out of fellowship with God and being lost and untethered and refusing even his his correction or his conviction. You know, there's teachings in the church that sound good and tickle our ears. But we got to do the hard work sometimes of applying ourselves and discerning and looking through, thinking about what's actually being said. Because there's a lot of teachings that use God's word to say what that person wants to say or to get the outcome that person wants to get. And it's not good. It's evil. Yeah, this happens in our lifetime as well. We think about even just Sadducees and Pharisees. They knew God's word. They taught God's word. 
And yet when Christ came, weren't they like the farthest group away from God? They didn't, they didn't even hear the truth of God because they had already decided what God's truth meant. So when Jesus spoke, all they did was condemn him and contradict him and try to catch him up in the lies. They didn't recognize the Son of God. Because they had their own system of belief. So you see, it's dangerous. And these things we have, to, we have to look out for. And do the hard work of making sure we surround ourselves with sound doctrine. So that we don't get caught up in these. Another brazen characteristic. Won't spend much time on this. But among lust and deception and darkness and will for arrogance is greed. Just add that to the list. And I won't spend much time, but they forsake, they forsaking the way, they've gone astray, followed the way of Balaam, who loved gain from wrongdoing. So we don't know exactly what we're doing, what they did, but we get the clue. Uh, Balaam was hired to speak a curse against the Israelites by the king of Moab because the Israelites were coming into the promised land and he had, they'd seen what their God can do. And he was scared, so he hires him to speak bad things, to curse the Israelites. God corrects that. doesn't happen. But it's basically, I'm out for hire to do whatever. I'll do evil. I'll say evil things. I'll teach wrong things. I'll defame anybody. I'll discredit God. As long as there's money in it. And so we get the idea that not only did they have false teachings, but in some way they wanted remuneration for the lies that they were teaching so that they spread. The second thing, uh, enticing the unstable. Verse 18, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in air. And so you also are, we're reminded that not everybody's strong. Just like we have children, we have to be extra careful. If there's an adult walking out on the front porch, we don't pay any attention to it. But if you see a, a tiny little kid that might could fit through the, the um, railings or something on the porch, we're on alert, right? They're extra vulnerable to, to being hurt. And we have that, yes, among communities of faith with new converts or perhaps converts that have been Christians for many years but just never took the time to really invest themselves and to root and ground themselves in the ways of God. And so we have unstable, we have vulnerable among us. And what's Peter's remedy to that? He says, grow. Take personal responsibility if you're new, you have the mature look after you. But if, if you're old enough to understand these things on your own, then, then do it. Press into God. Seek God. Know God. Grow. Give your heart to God. Dig deep. Do what it takes. Plant yourself by solid Christian friends. Plant yourself in solid biblical teaching, biblical preaching. Plant yourself. Read solid uh, doctrinal books. Not worldly fluff, not things that are just going to take us away from God, so that we can discern how to smell a fish, a doctrinal fish, when one comes our way. And it also encourages us to teach our young ones what? Sound doctrine. 
Now, we endeavor to do this, and maybe not so much right now with the pandemic, but this is an exception. We have Sunday school. We try to bring our little ones up knowing Jesus at a young age. That's our prayer, that you would come to know Jesus at a young age and live your life looking at the world through the eyes of the resurrection. And so the Bible stories count. God's truth counts. It can take root at a young age. And so each Sunday school class, and we have teachers that are gifted in this way to serve us. And we, we feed them God's word. We have our youth group that's still going right now anyway. And it is, it's an attempt by the church to build and grow stable Christians. It's like uh, if you want stability you on a piece of equipment, you have outriggers. And it makes your stance that much wider and you are that less likely to flip something over. And so when we hear sound doctrine, we, we, we surround ourselves in it. We're just making ourselves stronger and more stable. Why? Because this really happens. We, we keep ourselves weak. We keep ourselves vulnerable. And it can be only a matter of time before our flesh takes the bait. And third, empty teaching. So this is what people are getting for their money. This is what's going out there. What is a characteristic of false teaching? Waterless springs, mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Verse 19, they promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. So if you see this, you look at sometimes false teaching or flagrant lifestyles and you think, wow, that's the life. They're getting away with everything. No, they're not. They're just building up destruction. And guess what? He describes their own hearts. As free as they look, they're really still just slaves. Nobody escapes God's ways. You can't escape reality. It's delusion. God's ways are set. What he says, that's why we can trust him. Because what he says, he does. He's absolutely dependable. A waterless spring. So picture yourself. You are in the desert. And you are parched. You are pouring sweat. You've been walking perhaps many hours. And all at this point, when you're in that kind of atmosphere, all you can think about is water. I'm just, I'm thirsty just thinking about it. You want, I mean, just a drop. And so you're in the desert and in the distance, you see an oasis. You see trees popped up out of the sand and some greenery. And what do you do? Oh, water. And you take what little bit of energy you have left and you run to this place and you see the little pool of blue, fresh water and you dive in it only to get a mouthful of sand. Grit. Now you're worse off than you were before. And that's what false teaching does, according to thus saith the Lord. It promises an oasis. It promises to satisfy the hunger and, and, and the parched soul. Whatever it is that you have decided in your life that you need to make yourself feel good, look good, whatever it is. And we give ourselves to it. We dive in it with great hope and expectation. And we come away worse off than we were to begin with. 
with a mouthful of sand. That's not freedom. It just takes you from one level of slavery to a deeper, deeper level of disappointment and slavery. Likewise, it promises rain for the drought. Now things are only going to be looking better. Only to just be blown away and you never get a drop. And we know that there are sins. There's a prom- there are promises of lusts of the flesh and sins. They say, look, if you just do, just look one time. Just experiment one time and you'll be set free. You'll never feel so good. And you, then you realize when you've done it, what just happened? Now I want it more. Now I'm even further enslaved in it. That didn't satisfy me. Just made me even more thirsty to indulge in the flesh. John Piper says, oh, what a need there is in the church for discernment between waterless springs and springs of living water. The one bubbles up into eternal life and the other sinks down into the gloom where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. We must become a deeply discerning people. This is how we don't just survive but become stable even in this kind of atmosphere. Because all, whatever we came in here thinking this morning, whatever we, we think we need, we're, we're thirsting for, we're longing for, just know that all the other promises of the alternatives other than Christ, that's how it ends. A mouthful of grit and sand and deeper enslavement. The Apostle Paul warned the Galatians about using God's word for excesses, freedoms, the, the grace of God in the wrong way when he said in 5.13, you were called to freedom, brethren, but only don't, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love be servants of one another. Whereas the flesh, these false teachers want everybody to be their servants. Only the truth sets us free. And then lastly, he closes as if things weren't bad enough that it goes from bad to worse, 21 and 22. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. And what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mud. There you have, again, the dog and the sow. Now, many of us, or many have seen many use this passage to say, well, there you have it. it. Teaches plain and clear. You can lose your salvation. I don't believe that's how grace works. I don't believe that that's what Peter is teaching to the saints. Then, if that's not what it is, what is he saying? Well, there are numerous passages in Scripture that tell it like it is in the sense that, yes, you can have a spiritual experience, a genuine spiritual experience. You can get tingly. You can even have a change of outlook for a while or a season. Uh, clean your life up, clean your act up for a while and actually have a desire for the things of God for a while. But it is not a lasting change. Just last uh, Just recently, we looked at Jesus' parable of how difficult in real life it is for somebody to actually embrace the truth when it is broadcast, a parable of the seed and the sower. 
And three out of the four examples that Jesus gave, three went home still lost. And each had a degree of more of God's truth. Only the one. So the idea is that we can have this external, the the faith and the spirit can have an external influence on us that seems good and right and is and wants to draw us in. But we do not allow Christ to recreate us. We do not embrace, embrace and we don't repent of our sins and make him Lord of our lives. And so what happens is it stays external. It never becomes internal. And when it doesn't become internal, there's no real true change of nature. And that's the miracle of what Christ does in salvation. That's why we call it a miracle. Christ literally recreates a person, makes you new. And now you have new desires. You have a new eye. Sure, we still deal with the sin in the flesh, but we have a new goal, a new ambition, a new longing, new feelings. And if we are not changed from the inside out, this is what happens. So the pig and the sow, it's, it's the perfect example. Well, what happened? Well, you if you have a pet pig, and people do have pet pigs. I don't have a pet pig. I got no desire for a pet pig. I used to work on a farm that had pigs, and they stink. And my mom used to get on me. I'd come home. When you work, as you guys know who are farmers, when you work with animals that stink, you just get used to it. And so I would come home and I would just put my boots inside instead of outside. And she'd be like, I get those things out of here. I couldn't even smell them. You can take a pig out of the mud or wherever you keep it. Oh, you can power wash it. You can put powder on it. Beautiful clothing. Jewelry. Makeup. Might be Miss Piggy, the beautiful, most beautiful pig you've ever seen. It's only a matter of time. That's all external. And sure, the pig may smell even good, believe it or not. It's all just external. It's momentary. Because of the pig's nature, that's not what it was made for. It's going to go back to the slop. That's the point. That's the instinct. That's the nature. And if we do not embrace Christ, if we do not repent... And see God as our creator and as our Lord and as our Savior. And love Him through our obedience. If our nature is not changed, we're in this category of those that are preserved for destruction. You see, He even goes so far as to say it would have been better. What would have been better? Another thing that Scripture teaches is that when you are exposed to the truth of God, when God in His grace brings it to you, there is accountability and responsibility for you to react in the right way. Because it is a powerful thing to you for you to even be able to hear the truth. Not everybody gets that opportunity. And some people are literally inundated and washed and covered in it. And go away unchanged. And scripture says, oh no, there's a level of accountability. And the more you know, the more you've been exposed to, the more accountable you are to react. Teachers says they they undergo a stricter judgment. Why? Because they have applied themselves and they know about God and his word and how serious it is. To walk away from that is not a good thing. 
to hear God's word Sunday after Sunday, to sit in Sunday school, to read books, to, to watch, to listen to sermons, whatever it is. When it's God's word coming at us, the worst thing we can do is just walk away unchanged. A stricter judgment. And I hope that if there are any here this morning, maybe you've been attending this church since you were an infant. I hope that if there's any here this morning that have not embraced Christ as the one and only Savior to change the nature and to keep you from this destruction that Peter's talking about, that today would be different and that today you would go home with that new nature. That will satisfy the thirst. That will retrain your mind and retrain your emotions and your intellect. To know what life is really about. And today can be the beginning of that. Are you changed? Are you changed? Or will you go back to the slop of the day in a few more minutes? You know better. You know better. Jesus said, Woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. I tell you, it shall be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. What else do we need? So we have to decide, don't we? What world do we live in? Who gets to call the shots? What world view do we have? How do we understand our own desire to do good and to do evil and what are we going to do with it we got to decide are we bought with a price is Christ our Lord and Savior are we living for the glory of God or for our own glory seek him with all your heart and you will not become a heretic your heart and you will not fall prey to heretics May God bless the preaching of His Word this morning.